Amen. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, working our way through this uh, brief letter that is focused on the theme of joy and a great theme for us in the the days in which we live with political turmoil and um, health issues abounding and uh, all sorts of economic issues. Uh, Paul experienced a lot of difficulties himself writing this letter from prison. Um, and yet uh, was able to not only model joy, but actually commands us to rejoice. So uh, this, this idea of joy is something that can be ours as followers of Christ, that is um, independent of our circumstances. And uh, we have had the great privilege of considering this great theme. So Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was president during a very contentious time in our nation's history, as you well know. Uh, And yet he forged a new path at the outset of his presidency. Uh, He asked Edward Bates and Salmon Chase and William Seward to serve as his cabinet uh, in positions as Attorney General, Secretary of the Treasury, and Secretary of State. Uh, This was notable because all three of these individuals had run against Lincoln in the very heated 1860 election. They were his bitter enemies. Doris Goodwin tells the story in her book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, She said this, the powerful competitors who originally disdained Lincoln became colleagues who helped him steer the country through its darkest days. Um, Probably not an easy decision for Lincoln to make to extend these cabinet invitations. Uh, It was going to mean some contentious cabinet meetings. Uh, This is not normally how it is done. (laughs) But Lincoln knew that if the country was to navigate the divisive issue of slavery, that everybody needed to be at the table. We can't do it with a divided front. And so, um, really a remarkable pattern that Lincoln laid here and established in the early days of his presidency. Uh, There is uh, the the courage and commitment that is needed to speak the truth, right? But there's also the grace to speak it effectively. We need to know what to say, but we also need to know how to say it. This is where I think Lincoln was so notable. And of course, Jesus is the consummate example. According to John chapter 1, his ministry was characterized by grace and truth. Both grace and truth. Too often we err on different ends of this spectrum. We soft pedal the truth in order to keep the peace, or we bulldoze people with the truth and alienate them in the process. (laughs) We ought to speak truthfully, but we also ought to speak skillfully. The two are not mutually exclusive. This ability to navigate relationships is often called, in our culture, emotional intelligence. The Bible just calls it wisdom, right? How do you take 
a contentious situation and bring it together. That is not easy stuff. Consider a couple of these passages. Proverbs 16, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 12, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Constructive speech, speech that builds up. Now, this is the kind of... uh, This is the kind of speech that ought to characterize God's people. And here in Philippians 4, Paul addressed a sticky, contentious, and potentially explosive situation in the church in Philippi. And I'm going to suggest to you that he modeled grace and truth, courage and compassion. And if we're going to achieve unity or maintain unity in our own polarized context, It is going to take a great deal of humility, patience, and skill. If I were to summarize this text this morning, it would be this. Lean in even when you are inclined to dig in. You got to catch the posture, right? Lean in even when you are inclined to dig in, right? This is what we see happening here, what Paul's calling them to in this particular text. And we get into the nitty-gritty. Paul Paul had extended several general calls for unity uh, back in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He wanted their lives to align with their identity. He wanted their orthodoxy, their right belief, to match their orthopraxy their right behavior. He wanted them to live in light of who they were in Christ. Right? But at this point in the letter, Paul gets very specific, awkwardly specific. So I want us to consider the narrative. Obviously, Philippians is not what we would think of as a narrative uh, document or letter, but there is certainly a narrative that lies behind the letter. And so I want us to kind of enter into it here and consider what we can learn about how to skillfully uh, navigate conflict and bring about peace. The first thing we see here is the trouble. And of course, with any good narrative, you have conflict, right? You have some tension point, something's wrong that needs to be resolved, and certainly that is the case here. the trouble. So with that, let's look to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we quickly 
come to see the trouble, the tension in the text. Paul calls out two women in the church who were embroiled in significant conflict. Surprisingly, Paul names names. In a public letter that would be read to the entire church in Philippi, he throws Yodia and Syntyche under the bus. Seemingly. Why did Paul take this tact? It would certainly seem that some type of personal confrontation would perhaps have been more appropriate. I want to suggest to you several reasons why Paul did this. Number one, these women were long-standing and influential members of the church, likely engaged in some measure of ministry leadership. Paul called them co-workers, a term that is reserved for close ministry associates, like Timothy, Epaphroditus, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, John Mark, and Luke, to name a few. Yodia and Syntyche, or as some have called them, Odor and Stinky, might have been charter members. They were not just fringe attenders. This, that, that, that designation is co-workers. We must not miss that. I think it's part of the reason that Paul held them to a higher standard. And their division was having repercussions in the life of the church. I think the other reason why Paul probably addressed this is because, in such a public way is because the division was widespread. This is not a personal quarrel between two cantankerous old ladies, but rather a substantive division within the church. One commentator said the church was polarized around Yodia and Syntyche. This had become a, a, a matter of public record. <laughs> and Paul addresses it as such. The very clear sense is this was not the first conversation. <laughs> there had already been private conversation. There had already been confirmation of the matter by multiple witnesses, and it had come to this. And we don't know the substance of the conflict, but we can assume that it was not primarily a doctrinal matter. Paul is quick to confront false teaching and heresy. He doesn't in any way soft-pedal that. So he would have called it what it is, he would have addressed it if that was the issue. It wasn't. The problem here lies with personal preferences and convictions and agendas. Conflict was at its heart about pride and selfish ambition and a spirit of rivalry. In part, what Paul has already written here in the letter points us to that. He makes the contrast throughout the letter between selfish ambition and selfless ambition. Looking out for myself or looking out for others. I found myself very convicted by this text uh, this week. Yodia and Syntyche were long-standing, seemingly mature members of the church in Philippi. How did we get here? How did we come to a point where they were involved in such a stalemate at the center of a, a divisive situation that threatened to, to divide the church? How did we get here? And this is the convicting part for me. Spiritual pride becomes a subtle danger for those who have been in the faith for any length of time. 
when we first encounter Christ and we become aware of our, the depths of our sin, our inability to make peace with a holy God, and we become enamored with the beauty of the gospel, but as we grow and mature and progress in sanctification, uh, pride becomes public enemy number one. <laughs> and here are, again, two seemingly mature members of the church who have succumbed to pride. So a cautionary tale, certainly for those who have been in the faith for any length of time. Uh, carbon monoxide is a, a dangerous thing. You know about this, right? It's produced when fossil fuels are burned. So when your furnace runs at home, uh, carbon monoxide is produced. And if it is not properly vented or exhausted out of your home, that creates a dangerous situation. As the level of carbon monoxide increases, the level of oxygen decreases. That is not a good thing for people who rely on oxygen, right? which is all of us. And it's particularly dangerous because it is colorless and odorless. And a person often doesn't realize that they are experiencing carbon monoxide poisoning until it is too late. And sin, my friends, is equally deceptive. Regardless of where you are in the journey of your Christian life, there are subtle dangers related to sin. So Paul addresses sin in the church. And we too must take the unity of the church seriously. A Christian division is a serious wound in the body of Christ. We should feel it sting the same way that Paul does. We should recognize the great danger in division. By the way, private discord does not remain contained. <laughs> what was happening between Yodia and Syntyche was not just about these two. Bitterness leaks. Right? You might not think it does, but it does. Whatever that sin is that you think of that's private and no one knows about it, it, it impacts your relationships. It impacts the orientation of your heart. Paul knew that a cancer in one part of the body impacts the whole body. So we have perhaps one of the earliest glimpses here of church discipline. Uh, Matt read uh, out of Matthew 18. Uh, here's another text in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. So we spend an awful lot of time uh, getting angry about what's happening in the culture. <laughs> Laws that are being passed and things that ought to grieve us, quite honestly. right? But we have a particular responsibility not to critique and judge the world, but to maintain accountability 
in the church. We are to be God's distinctive people, God's lighthouse in the world. And that calls for vigilance. And uh, Paul hits this very overtly in this text. Uh, John Calvin recognized that uh, church discipline was not popular. It wasn't popular in his day, in the time of the Reformation. And he spoke to this. He said, uh, but because some persons in their hatred of discipline recoil from its very name, let them understand this. If no society, indeed no house, which has even a small family, can be kept in proper condition without discipline, it is much more necessary in the church whose condition should be as ordered as possible. So even any, any house has some kind of structure and guideline and accountability and expectation for the members of that family. How much more so for the church, right? Because we bear the name of Christ. Accordingly, as the saving doctrine of Christ is the soul of the church, so does discipline serve as its sinews through which the members of the body hold together, each in its own place. Therefore, all who desire to remove discipline or to hinder its restoration, whether they do this deliberately or out of ignorance, are surely contributing to the ultimate dissolution of the church. So Calvin understood there to be three marks of a genuine, true church. A true church is a place where the word is rightly preached, the sacraments or the ordinances are rightly observed, and discipline is rightly practiced purity of the church is maintained. So it's not a sidebar issue. It's a difficult issue, especially in a culture like we live in today, where any type of confrontation is seen as inherently unloving and harsh. But it is a key mark of a true church. And just here at the outset, we consider the trouble here in Philippi and Paul's willingness to confront this matter uh, again, we must take the unity of the church seriously. Uh, James reminds us that this is not just a, uh, something we do out of uh, a sense of duty and obedience to Scripture, but it's actually a loving act, right? He says in James 5, the very end of his letter, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, minding your own business when it comes to sin is not loving. If you know someone is heading for destruction, if one of your kids is on a, a, a path of destruction, you don't just stand idly by, right? You encourage them, you challenge them. And the same is true in the church. It is an act of love because we know where sin leads. So the trouble, the tension in the text is seen here clearly. We must take the unity of the church seriously. We must take sin seriously. We also see the task. Paul extends a very specific instruction here. Uh, He speaks into the trouble. (laughs) And he challenges these two women to agree in the Lord. Literally, to be of the same mind in the Lord. This is not simply a call to be friends again or just get along. Uh, This doesn't certainly mean that we abandon all of our distinctive gifts and personalities and aptitudes and convictions or areas of interest. Just leave all that at the door. 
we are very different people, and that is okay. Uh, Paul is not telling them to be just zombies, you know, to be clones. Um, but he is calling them to find common ground in the gospel. He's calling them to align their thinking with the thinking or the mind of Christ. To adopt his pattern, to humble yourself, to surrender your rights, to remember your core identity as a child in the family of God, a citizen in God's kingdom. Be careful of other allegiances that supersede your allegiance to Christ. Uh, Hoosiers is one of the great sports movies of all time. And Coach Norman Dale addressed his team on one occasion and said, five players on the floor functioning as one single unit. Team, team, team. No one, no one more important than the other. Individual players must put aside their agendas if they are to play as a team and achieve a common goal. Uh, We need to be more concerned about the name on the front, right? The team name than the name on the back, our individual name. We must work to root out tribalism and to find common ground in the gospel. Tribalism is a controlling loyalty to one's own tribe, party, or group. Again, we all bring a variety of perspectives and convictions to the table. Political affiliation, schooling convictions, positions on gun control, PC or MAC allegiances patriotism or commitment to country, a number of citizenships are represented within our congregation. And of course, some of these things intersect more overtly with our life in the church. Worship style preferences, missions, philosophies, preferred teaching styles, financial perspectives, should we spend money on this or that? You find yourself in a ministry with someone who doesn't like to plan. They're very spontaneous and you are a very ordered person who likes to know everything five years out, right? And that gets frustrating, right? So a lot of areas in which we could become very irritated by one another. Again, we are different, but the problem comes when we allow our, our other identities or other labels or other allegiances to supersede our core identity in Christ, We've been adopted into God's family, which is a stronger bond than even biological family. Paul says that we have been made into one new ethnicity, which is stronger than any other racial or cultural identity. We've been made citizens of God's kingdom, which demands a higher allegiance than we owe even to our country of citizenship. So this is the task to root out tribalism, and to find common ground in the gospel. Uh, By the way, you can't have Christian unity if you're not a Christian. So remember here, Paul's addressing individuals who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ and adopted into God's family, brought to peace with God as their heavenly father. So if that's not you, I plead with you. (laughs) Turn to Christ. 
Uh, recognize that you're alienated from God because of your sin. We all are in our natural condition. Turn to Christ. Uh, come to peace with him. Be welcomed into his family. That's the offer of the gospel. And I commend it to you today. So the trouble, the task, and what I'm calling the teamwork. Paul obviously challenges Yodia and Syntyche here to agree in the Lord. But these were not the only ones who were called to action in the text. Paul calls on the help of his true companion. In fact, the old King James says, true yoke fellow. There's the imagery, right, of two oxen yoked together, working in the fields together. We don't know who Paul is referring to here. He doesn't name the individual. But it appears that Paul had a representative in Philippi, there in the church. Timothy would be a logical candidate. He was kind of Paul's right-hand guy. But actually, Timothy was still with Paul in Rome at this point and would not be going to Philippi for some time. Epaphroditus was the messenger. He's the one that had brought a gift from the Philippians to Paul, and now Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter. But that seems a little strange that Paul would give this instruction to Epaphroditus. He's with Epaphroditus. He could have given him the instructions in person. Some have actually suggested that this title, True Yokefellow, is actually a proper name, which would come across as Syzygus. So maybe he's writing to Syzygus, but there's no mention in history of anyone by that name. The leading candidate in my mind is Luke. Luke was one of Paul's co-workers. He was a medical doctor who traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys and who kept a journal of his travels, which we know as the book of Acts. And Luke does something really interesting. As he writes the book of Acts, he uses pronouns, very carefully uses pronouns. And he often will say things like we or us as he talks about the journeys until you get to Acts chapter 16, which is the chapter that tells us about the planting of the church of Philippi. And at that point, it becomes very evident based on Luke's pronouns that Luke stayed in Philippi while Paul went on in the missionary journey. Only later did they reconnect. So it's likely that Luke could have been the guy, the associate, the representative there in Philippi. It really doesn't matter. The point is that Yodia and Syntyche were not necessarily going to be able to resolve their differences on their own. Now, sometimes we just don't see things clearly, especially when we are emotionally entangled in the situation. And so Paul recognizes this. Yodia and Syntyche had a responsibility, but so did the church. So did others. A number of years ago, a woman in the church came to me for counsel. She had a very bright daughter who excelled in academics. And she was concerned about the dynamics in her daughter's classroom in a new school year. 
uh, a special needs student had been brought into the class. And this mom began to realize very quickly that the special needs student was going to require an increasing amount of the teacher's time. Time that would no longer be able to be given to her daughter. And she wanted to know what she should do. Those are moments where I always have to pause before I answer. I wanted to say, it depends on whether you value her academics or her character. Is the goal for her to get good grades or to learn to love? But I didn't answer that way. But to me, there's a fundamental misunderstanding. Her goal was for her daughter to exceed regardless of anybody else in the class, wanted her daughter to excel. Especially as we think about the church, the goal is not for you or you or you to excel beyond everyone else. The goal, as Paul states it in Ephesians 4, is for the church to grow together as each part, as each ligament does its work. I think as we think about this, we have to recognize that we must collectively embrace the responsibility for the unity of the church. Sanctification is a group effort. I like the way this commentator, Stephen Fowle, said it. We are far too indifferent to divisions within the body that do not directly involve us. If we saw our stance before God as bound up with the lives of others as strongly as Paul does, we would also share in Paul's concerns over divisions in the body. We think in individual terms. God thinks in corporate terms. We are involved in a group project. And I'll be honest, I hate group projects. I mean, I detest group projects. I detest them for me. I detest them when my kids come home with a group project. I'd much rather just do it myself. But regardless, we're involved in a group project. It's not just about you. We are responsible for each other. The goal is to get everyone over that wall at the the, uh, the, the ropes course, right? <laughs> Great, you can scale it, but the goal is to get everyone over it. That means we're going to have to work together. And so Paul is reminded, this isn't just about Yodia and Syntyche. There is a corporate responsibility we see here as we unpack the teamwork aspect of the text. Finally, there's this matter of tone. The tone. Uh, Paul confronted sin here with courage, but he also addressed it with compassion. What Paul said was significant, but how Paul said it was also significant. Paul did not use harsh language in making his appeal. He did not extend an imperative command to Yodia and Syntyche. He did not say, I order you. Instead, he said, I plead with you. The word plead is a compound word meaning to call alongside. There's a certain visual image attached to this word. This is not a shout from across the room. This is an arm around the shoulder. Paul got down on his knees and pleaded with them to agree together in the Lord. Uh, Paul did not assign blame. 
he called both of them to move from their entrenched position. Matter of fact, he's, he uses the word plead twice. He says, I plead with you, Yodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche. Um, he calls both of them to move from their entrenched positions. I've got to think that Paul, maybe in the back of his mind, uh, had a slight affinity towards one or the other of these women in their particular position. It would just be natural, wouldn't it? Paul says you both need to move. You both need to, 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 to lean in, to, to move towards one another. You both need to take responsibility. Paul publicly commended them. He expressed his appreciation publicly. Now, he called them out publicly, but he also commended them publicly for their faithful service in the cause of the gospel. They had contended at his side. They had endured hardship, opposition, and toil This is a word that's often used in a battle context. Soldiers serving alongside of each other in the midst of great opposition and sacrifice. It is likely that these women were formative in the planting of this church and all the sacrifices that that entailed. And Paul viewed them as valued co-workers who were bound together by the gospel. Matter of fact, he identifies them as part of a larger group that included Clement and others. Together, they had all been part of an inner circle, the core group which established the church in Philippi. And it seems that Paul wanted to remind them of the strong bond that they had and all that they had endured together. But at the bottom of it, Paul addressed them as friends, not as enemies. He called them believers, fellow believers, right? Those whose names were written in the book of life. These were not outsiders, These were people that Paul loved. These are people that God loved. So all of these things are part of Paul's tone. There's an Old Testament account related to David. Uh, Before David became King David, he was growing in popularity. He was living in the wilderness on the run from King Saul. And he appealed to a man named Nabal, a prominent businessman. Uh, David had to continually feed his... uh, his, uh, his group of loyal followers, and uh, he had performed some services for Nabal in terms of protecting his sheep and, and, and such, and things that would have had cultural significance in that day. And so David comes to Nabal at the festival time uh, and asked if, if Nabal would, would provide a couple of sheep that David could, could help to feed his men. And Nabal... Uh, did not respond graciously or generously. Let's just put it that way, right? Matter of fact, Nabal not only said no, but he had a few choice names and some pretty derisive titles for David. Of course, it did not end well for Nabal, if you read the rest of that story. Nabal's name meant fool, and he lived up to his name. Um, he, he, he did not handle the matter with skill and with tact. Right? He had no filter. We are called to speak the truth. We are called to speak the truth. But we are called to speak the truth in love. We need to say the right things in the right way. And that, of course, is no easy matter. Settling disagreements, stepping into contentious situations is really difficult stuff. And we live in a day where there's such a lack of civility, 
Public discourse is often toxic. People are trigger-happy on social media, lambasting anyone with opposing views, questioning their motives, assigning motives. Political discourse has devolved into name-calling and posturing. This is the environment. This is the pond in which we swim. And yet we are called to respond differently, to to respond after the pattern of Christ. Again, my friends, Jesus provides the consummate example of humble, selfless service. We see it very clearly here as we think about the events of Palm Sunday. Jesus came riding into the city, not on a white stallion, but on a lowly donkey. He truly was the king, but he was willing to lay aside his rights and his privileges. Right? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but he was willing to humble himself, to take on human flesh, humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we are told to have that attitude or that mindset. My friends, I urge you to lean in, even when you are inclined to dig in. We ought to have a sense of moving towards one another, being sensitive to how we can be peacemakers and draw people together. We need to keep short tabs. We need to foster a rich sense of unity, and that's not always easy. Matter of fact, it's usually not. (laughs) Uh, But we have here a wonderful model for what that looks like in the context of the local church. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to pronounce a benediction and close in song here this morning. It's benediction from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And God's people said,